Hi, and welcome to the April 2018 edition of the EVJ podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon Morgan. Today we have Ed Knowles joining us to discuss ACTH testing and Katrina McKenzie examining the difference between blood collection techniques when assessing coagulopathies. Ed Knowles is a medicine specialist at Bell Equine Veterinary Clinic and is also undertaking a PhD with Waltham and the RVC, looking into the risk factors of laminitis. He joins us to talk about his recent paper titled Plasma Adrenocorticotropic Hormone Concentrations in Ponies Measured by Two Different Assays Suggests Seasonal Cross-Reactivity or Interference. Hi Ed, thank you for um, giving us some time to talk about your new paper in EVJ. Um, Can you start by giving us some background information on your study, uh, why you've decided to look at the two different assays used to measure ACTH, and why you're investigating the seasonal differences between them? Yeah, sure. So obviously we're interested in PPID, pituitary pars intermediate dysfunction, as a common condition of older horses and ponies, really because from my perspective because of the association with laminitis and we know that measurement of ACTH can often be a useful diagnostic aid uh, when trying to explore PPID. For quite a long time now we've been using the chemiluminescent assay and that was validated in the horse back in 2002. Um, What we were interested to see was whether an alternative assay would give similar results. Now, there had been a little bit of work with the assay that we were looking at. So Irvin et al. had performed um, a validation study and done a small method comparison. But what we wanted to do was to do a a method comparison that included a greater range of ACTH values. And initially, trying to get that range of ACTH values really was why we included the autumn um, samples as well as the spring samples, because we know that the equine pituitary is very seasonal and we knew that we would we would find higher values in our autumn samples. So the initial motivation was actually just to get a good spread of ACTH values. Okay, so what were the objectives of this study? Our initial objective really was was to do a simple method comparison study. What we wanted to do was to be able to derive diagnostic thresholds that we could use with a different analyzer. So we started off with actually quite a simple objective. And then as it became clear that the data were a little bit more complicated than we'd expected, then we realized that we needed to um, expand our objectives. And that's really where we started to look at the um, effects of cross-reactivity on these study on these uh, assays, um, and that's why we started to use the uh, synthetic peptides and to look at the effects of decay. Could you tell us a little bit more about your study design? Yeah, sure. So what we did was we took a subset of ponies from a larger cohort study, and we measured their ACTH in both the the autumn. And then again in the following spring. And when we measured those samples, we ran them concurrently on two different analyzers. One was a chemiluminescent analyzer and the other was an immunofluorescent analyzer. And what we wanted to do then was obviously to see what the uh, 
Olivier was what we then became interested in. Other um, parts of the study were that we were interested in the seasonal changes in individual ponies. So how, how many of the ponies were testing positive in the autumn and then were those ponies still testing positive the following spring? We also wanted to look at the effects of these um, synthetic peptides. So our design there was simply adding different concentrations of synthetic peptides to horse plasma and seeing what results the analyzers gave. So we could effectively trick the analyzer into thinking that something else was ACTH. And can you tell us a little bit more about why you were using these synthetic peptides and what you were looking for? We were, when we, when we did our initial method comparison, what we found was that in the springtime, the assays actually gave pretty similar results. There was a, a slight bias in that we tended to get slightly higher results using a chemiluminescent assay. But when we ran those samples in the autumn, we found that the bias was much greater and also that there was a much greater spread of, of results. And we felt that that was consistent with cross-reactivity to the, for, for the chemiluminescent assay. So we thought that the chemiluminescent assay was detecting something else in equine plasma that was present in the autumn. And other research suggested to us that we should be looking at um, ACTH fragments or other POMC-derived peptides. So what we did was to look at alpha-MSH, beta-cell troponin, and CLIP, which are all fragments of ACTH, to see whether they could be responsible for the in vivo effect that we were seeing. I see. And was this done on a cohort of healthy ponies or um, ponies with laminitis? Or how did you come about this cohort? So the cohort is, is actually part of another study, but they are ponies that have had no known history of laminitis. Um, they're all at least five years old and are resident on about 25 different yards um, across Kent. And um, they are a largely healthy cohort. The majority of them are in work of some kind. Um, there were a small number that we detected with um, some signs that could be consistent with PPID. And we also asked owners if they'd noted any signs of PPID. So that amongst the cohort, it's likely that there were a, a small number of PPID cases, um, but this was a largely healthy cohort. The, the difficulty was really that we didn't set out to perform this study as a, a study looking at um, the actual diagnostic accuracy in terms of clinical signs um, because we simply didn't have enough definitive cases, um, definitive positive cases to do that sort of work. Okay. So did you find any differences between the immunofluorescent and the chemiluminescent assays? I guess in, in, in terms of the actual results they were giving us, the results for the immunofluorescent assay were always lower than the chemiluminescent assay. And in the spring, they were just a little bit lower. 
in the autumn, they were quite a lot lower. Again, because of this, um, this suspected cross-reactivity in the autumn. We weren't able to actually analyze which of these assays would be better from a diagnostic perspective. Um, and we, we can speculate either way as to, as to which might be, might be the more effective assay. We had a small number of ponies where we were um, convinced that they did truly have PID, and we found that both assays um, were significantly associated with the presence of hypertrichosis, but we didn't ha really have large enough numbers to um, explore other clinical signs in much detail. And did you find that um, if ponies were classified as PPID positive in the autumn, did you also find they were positive in the springtime as well? No, we didn't. I mean, we, we used the diagnostic thresholds that were commonly um, used at the time of the study. So that would be an autumn threshold of about 47 picograms per mil and a spring threshold of about 29 picograms per mil. And what we found was that a lot of these apparently healthy ponies exceeded that autumn threshold. In, in fact, about about 65% of our cohort exceeded that value in the autumn. Whereas in the springtime, it was only a minority of the cohort, only about 23% of our animals were um, above the, the spring reference range. Now, none of these ponies received any treatment in that time for, for PPID. And I think what this indicates is that ponies in particular are very seasonal creatures and, and they they do tend to have a, a large seasonal increase in pituitary hormone output. I think that it's possible that there were cases of PPID in that 65% and, and certainly we'd expect there to be some cases in there, but I think it's I think it's clear that it's that sixty five percent of those animals are unlikely to have true PPID. So would this lead you to think about changing the thresholds used? There has, yeah, I mean there has been some some further discussion of these thresholds um, subsequent to this work, and actually around the time of publication. Um, there were new guidelines published by the equine endocrinology group which have suggested that we need to use a much greater equivocal range um, particularly in the autumn where we really were looking at values between about 50 and 100 as being equivocal values um, and this this fits well with other data that's come out from other groups showing um, some quite interesting breed variation um, Andy Durham at Liphook has got some interesting data showing really quite marked seasonal increases in some of our pony breeds. And there's also some data from groups in the States showing that some older horses um, that have histologically normal pituitaries can also have quite, uh, quite high um, ACTH values. So I think really this this fits well with with other other data that's come out at the same time or or around the same time. Which clinical signs did you find were associated with a positive ACTH measurement? Um, the, the only one that was statistically significant was hypertrichosis. Um, I suspect that had the study had had more power, then we may have. Um, we may have found an association with other signs, but the only one that we could show a statistical association with was hypertrichosis. 
And how did the addition of these synthetic um, ACTH fragments affect your assay results? So the addition of CLIP, which is corticotropin-like intermediate load peptide, had a marked effect on the chemiluminescent assay. So by adding, adding CLIP to our um, equine matrix, we could increase the apparent ACTH value by, by hundreds of, uh, of picograms per ml if we wanted to. So we could really manipulate that quite, quite easily with CLIP. With the other compounds that we looked at, which were beta-cell troponin and alpha-MSH, we only really found any effects of those at, at very, very high, um, really su extremely superphysiological concentrations. So we think that CLIP um, could have an effect on the chemiluminescent assay at concentrations that we might expect to find in vivo and could be responsible for the in vivo effect that we see. So this might be a bit early on, but how do these findings translate into clinical practice? Um, I think that at the moment there's, there's more work to be done. I think they do reinforce that we need to be a little bit cautious about how we interpret our diagnostic thresholds for PPID, uh, particularly in ponies. And as we've said, that fits well with data from other groups. I think it's clear that some of these pony breeds really can be extremely seasonal. Um, and we see that their pituitary secretome really does increase an awful lot in the autumn. So we need to be cautious about how we interpret our uh, um, diagnostic test results in those animals. I think as far as practice goes, there will be more work to follow here. We, we need to be aware that ACTH is only one of a number of peptides that are being secreted by the pituitary. And I think in due course, what we will find is that we may be able to improve our diagnostic accuracy by looking at a greater panel of pituitary peptides when trying to make a diagnosis of PPID. So I, I, guess, I guess what this is telling us is that the, um, the pituitary is, is a complicated, um, complicated organ and is producing a, an awful lot of things in the autumn, which we, we knew, but is, is illustrated by these data. And do you have a take-home message for us? Um, I guess from a physiological perspective, then we need to look more closely at the normal seasonal variation um, of the pituitary secretome, and we need to dig a bit deeper into the peptides that are being produced. From a clinical perspective, I think it's very helpful that our diagnostic thresholds for ACTH have been reappraised recently. Um, but I think that this is an area that we'll see further work over the next few years. And I would expect that we will see more data coming out, in particular, exploring the effects of breed, latitude and age on the, uh, the seasonality of the equine pituitary. Great. Well, Ed, thank you very much for joining us to discuss this. No problem at all. Thanks. Katrina McKenzie is a medicine specialist at Rossdale's Equine Hospital. During her residency, Katrina undertook the following research, which led to this paper. 
titled Comparison of Two Blood Sampling Techniques for the Determination of Coagulation Parameters in the Horse, Jugular Venipuncture and Indwelling Intravenous Catheters. Hi Kat, thank you very much for joining us today to discuss your recent paper in EVJ. Could you start by giving us a bit, bit of background about why you decided to look into the blood sampling of the critically ill horse? Yeah, so we were actually performing a larger study evaluating a point of care coagulometer in critically ill horses and we thought it would be useful to look at the effect of sampling technique at the same time. Um, evaluation of the coagulation status is a really important component of critical care um, and hospitalised horses are typically can be subjected to serial venipuncture. And previously, catheter samples have always been used when you're evaluating coagulation parameters, just because people have been concerned that the sample might be hemolyzed or there could be contamination from medication, um, in particular heparin used for flushing or dilution from IV fluid therapy. So people have been concerned about this affecting the accuracy of results. Um, but repeat venipuncture has many disadvantages, so for example causing pain and anxiety to the horse, but also potential risks associated with the repeat trauma to the vessel, so for example thrombophlebitis. Um, so we thought that the use of an existing intravenous catheter for sampling for coagulation purposes would be preferable. And the sampling techniques um, you're looking into, the intravenous catheter and jugular venipuncture, have the differences in these been evaluated in other species with respect to looking at coagulopathies? Um, yeah, both in human medicine and in dogs, blood sampling um, by the various techniques, so by direct venipuncture um, and by sampling from an IV catheter, um, have been evaluated and they've been found to have no effect on coagulation parameters, but there's been no published studies evaluating the effect of sample site in horses. And what were your aims and hypotheses? So the aim of the study was to compare coagulation parameters from blood obtained by direct jugular venipuncture and from intravenous catheter sampling in critically ill horses. And we hypothesised that sampling technique would not have an effect on measured coagulation parameters. Okay, so what was your study design and methods? Um, so the study was a prospective observational design um, and we used a convenient sample of horses presenting to our intensive care unit over a six month period. Um, and horses were included, horses in which evaluation of coagulation status was clinically indicated. Um, so for example, following colic surgery or if there was clinical evidence of SARS. Um, we excluded horses that were less than 12 months of age or those that had been treated with plasma or anticoagulants. Um, and so for each horse, blood samples were obtained by both direct venipuncture from the non-catheterised vein and from the indwelling intravenous catheter. And the catheter sample was obtained immediately after um, 10 mils of blood had been withdrawn and discarded first. So this just made sure that at least three times the dead space of the catheter was removed first. Um, for our sample analysis, we did this within half an hour of sample collection and we looked at plasma prothrombin time, activated partial thromboplastin time, antithrombin 3 activity, fibrinogen D-dimers and whole blood prothrombin time. So what did you find? Were there any differences between um, the blood samples taken from either method? Yeah, so in total we had 55 horses in the study and um, of these 47% had clinical evidence of SIRS. Um, none of the horses sampled had clinical evidence of DIC and so for that we were looking 
for signs like jugular thrombosis or petechial hemorrhages. Um, but three of our horses included in the study had laboratory diagnosis of DIC. And this was based on the standard criteria of, of at least three out of six abnormalities. Um, so this includes a decrease in platelets, fibrinogen and antithrombin-3 activity, or increases in PT, APTT or D-dimers. Um, and so to evaluate our results, so we looked at agreement and correlation using Blond-Altman analysis and Lin's cor correlation. Um, and then we also looked at sensitivity and specificity by comparing the binary outcome for the IV catheter sample, um, so as a normal versus abnormal, against the gold standard venipuncture sample. And our Blond-Altman analysis um, so looking at agreement between techniques showed no evidence of fixed bias between the sample types. Um, but we did find a small proportional bias between um, sample techniques for fresh plasma PT, and this showed greater difference at higher values. And a proportional bias was also detected for the antithrombin-3 and D-dimers, and this showed less difference at higher values. So a wide limit of agreement was observed for antithrombin and D-dimer analysis, but for all the other tests, agreement of results between assays was clinically acceptable. Um, we looked at correlation between sampling methods and found that this was poor for antithrombin-3 and D-dimers, but it was substantial for all other parameters measured. And then when we looked at the sensitivity and specificity, um, we found that overall results were good. Um, sensitivity and specificity for antithrombin Three and sensitivity for fresh plasma PT were lower, um, and sensitivity was greatest for fibrinogen and APTT, and specificity was greatest for fibrinogen. So, how has this changed your clinical practice? Um, so, from our results, we we concluded that, with the exception of antithrombin three and D dimers, agreement between sampling methods was good. Um, so, obviously, as I said previously sampling through a pre-placed catheter offers several benefits, so reduced patient stress, increased ease of sampling, um, and reduced risk of trauma to the sampled vessel. And patients that are at high, highest risk of complications, such as thrombophlebitis, so for example, patients with SARS, these are also the patients that tend to benefit the most or would tend to undergo serial monitoring of coagulation um, most frequently. So from our results, I think we can say that with the exception of antithrombin-3 and D-dimers, blood samples taken through the catheter have a clinically equivalent results to those obtained by direct venipuncture for most of the commonly used coagulation parameters. So I think they really do, does provide a, a suitable alternative for sample method. Okay, so ultimately, what's your take-home message? So the take-home message, I think, is that, that intravenous catheter blood samples do provide a suitable alternative for the measurement of routine coagulation parameters, but with the exception of antithrombin-3 and D-dimers. Okay, Katrina, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks again for listening, and please join us for the next edition.